Okay, last time we sat down with Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's top doctor, to chat about the processes that go on in the back end when deciding how to communicate effectively with the general public during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we are so excited to talk knowledge translation with Dr. Peter Kulis about the science that brought the mRNA vaccine to fruition. Hello and welcome to Raincoat. My name is Isabel. And I'm Sarah. And we are excited to share how academia, industry and communities can work together on complex problems and improve knowledge translation. Today we have 2022 Canada Gardner Award Laureate, former director of UBC's Life Sciences Institute, and a member of the Order of Canada, Dr. Peter Cullis. And this is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to his long list of, of accomplishments. So before we begin, Dr. Cullis, can you give us an introduction of yourself, of who you are, and what you do? Sure. Um, I've... Um... Been, uh, I'm in the biochemistry. I'm a professor in the biochemistry department uh, here at uh, UBC. Uh, I've been uh, I'm one of the more senior members. I've been um, in the department now. I guess it's for over 40 years. Over 40 years. I joined in 1978, and um, the uh, <coughs> for a good proportion of that time, um, pretty much all of it, uh, the um, I've been looking at or trying to uh, exploit the potential uh, for lipid-based systems, well, both for under trying to understand their roles in biological membranes, but also uh, to use uh, some of these systems as uh, delivery vehicles, both for cancer drugs and also for nucleic acid-based drugs. So you developed the nanoparticles used in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine more than a decade ago. Um, what got you interested in the field of nanoparticles? Yeah, so the um, I'm originally a physicist, uh, so my PhD is in physics. And uh, the um, when I hit the uh, end of my PhD, I realized that uh, the um, you know the, the most interesting problems, at least the problems I found most interesting, were well outside the field of physics. And uh, so I uh, I. Uh, Uh, particularly in the life sciences, and I, I, got, I got a little bit interested in biological membranes, although I didn't know anything about them really. Uh, and I applied for a uh, what well, at that time the the CIHR in those days was called Medical Research Council. I uh, applied for a fellowship uh, to go to Oxford, which I won, and um, ended up in the uh, in the biochemistry department there, which was quite an experience. Uh, I didn't know what a protein was, didn't know what nucleic acids were. I didn't know anything, uh, but I knew a bit about NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance. And we, I used it to study biological membranes, and particularly the lipids in biological membranes. And I uh, got really interested in the, um, in the properties of lipids. Well, in order to study this, uh, these, uh, these lipids, we had to, the, the, the biological membranes were just way too complicated to get any clean answers out. And so we had to use model membranes, and this, this is where the lipid nanoparticles started to come in. But we also found that uh, we could load cancer drugs uh, into these uh, into these um, these lipid nanoparticles, and so that's what got us interested in um, the whole notion of, of delivery. Uh, that uh, because we could package cancer drugs, most common anti-cancer drugs, 
uh, into the lipid nanoparticles very efficiently. And uh, so the, uh, the idea there, of course, was to uh, try to deliver cancer drugs much more specifically to where they need to go. I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous situation we currently have in chemotherapy, you know, where only 0.001% of the administered drug actually gets to the tumor uh, and all the rest goes and causes very nasty effects elsewhere in your body. And uh, so we had these, uh, we had this possibility for, um, for uh, packaging and delivering cancer drugs. So we decided to start a company uh, with the uh, postdocs in my lab. So this is around about 1992. Uh, but anyway, we started a company called Inex Pharmaceuticals. Uh, and um, over the course, we, we, the CEO that we'd hired in the company came to me and said, well, I can't raise enough money, uh, you know, putting these old cancer drugs into, into these lipid nanoparticles. Uh, the gene therapy was very much in vogue at that time. And so I uh, thought, well, how on earth can we encapsulate nucleic acid into, the, uh, into a lipid nanoparticle by other means? And it turned out that in our studies of lipid asymmetry, we'd synthesized a lipid that's called an ionizable cationic lipid. And then it also turned out that these ionizable lipids were useful uh, for getting into cells. And so uh, a lot of this work we did in collaboration with a company in, uh, in Boston called Alnylam. The uh, end result was that the clinical trial was wildly successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the results came out in 2017, and uh, the um, the uh, drug was approved by the FDA in 2018. Well, by that point, we formed another company called Acuitas, and so we thought, well, maybe we can deliver much larger messenger RNA and have that instead of silencing a protein in the liver, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps we can get a protein expressed in the liver. And so the uh, the that that turned out to be the case that we could actually get proteins being expressed in the liver, and we got better and better at it. And then in about 2014, we were contacted by a, an immunologist at the University of Pennsylvania, a guy named Drew Weissman, and uh, he um, he wanted to try our system as a vaccine. In other words, putting messenger RNA in that's coding for a uh, a protein that's associated with a virus and uh, seeing if we could raise good immune response uh, to that virus. And so one of the first pieces of work was done with Zika virus and, uh, and, and uh, essentially making mRNA that coded for the, um, it's a membrane protein uh, that's on the, on, the, on the Zika virus mem- uh, outside, on the outside of the, me- of the, uh, the membrane. And uh, this this worked incredibly well, um, and so the giving complete protection against uh, viral in, uh, Zika viral infection. So this brought us to the attention uh, of, um, of BioNTech uh, in Germany, and the um, and so Acuitas started working with BioNTech, but that was on a flu vaccine. Uh, this is about 2018, 2019, and uh, <clears throat> of course in 2020. Uh, then all efforts uh, turned uh, to um, the the uh, COVID to COVID nineteen and uh, and BioNTech in turn had been working with Pfizer um, on a, on a flu vaccine as well. Anyway, so this uh, the the, the uh, at that point they ended up choosing the uh, lipid nanoparticle that we designed at Acuitas, 
to incorporate into the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which, you know, I think there was about two and a half to three billion doses administered last year, and there's probably going to be four billion this year. So it's had a, had a major effect uh, in um, in uh, really controlling the, uh, the, the global pan- pandemic. But so let's went through all of that just to say that, you know, the, uh, you know sometimes you, end, you, you start off doing quite different things and they end up being um, sort of kind of basic research, but it ends up being incredibly useful in terms of a, you know, of, uh, in terms of a therapeutic. So that's the story of the vaccine, just at 30,000 feet and going pretty quickly. <laughs> wow, that's a huge story. Um, you talked uh, so much about your journey with the lipid nanoparticles for the drug delivery. And, you know, we are coming from a more clinical research background. Um, and having a lot to do with research on humans and rehab science. And um, in lay language, how would you define for us what lipid nanoparticles actually do? Yeah, the, uh, the simplest way to think of it, uh, the, the, uh, you know, we have the, most drugs that we use are what you might term small, what's usually termed small molecules. Um, they're uh, 500 molecular weight or something in that range, like cancer drugs or, you know, drugs to treat atherosclerosis or whatever it might be. And the reason that we use small molecules is because it's only those molecules can actually get into cells, uh, get across the cell membrane uh, to um, affect some intracellular target. And so the... Uh, the larger molecules, such as nucleic acid-based uh, based drugs like small interfering RNA or mRNA, um, just can't get into cells. They're too big, too charged. And so, uh, and also, of course, your body has very intricate and sophisticated mechanisms for making sure that they never do get into cells uh, because, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, they don't want foreign DNA or RNA in there. Uh, that can cause problems that we're all quite aware of. Um, the um, anyway, so they the, and also they're very very readily degraded in biological fluids, so they need delivery systems. Um, the uh, so if you want to use messenger RNA mRNA as a therapeutic, uh, you have to have a delivery system that is able uh, to protect it from uh, the biological environment. Uh, first of all, um, protect it from degradation. And uh, secondly, to once it reaches a target cell, uh, to enable this cargo be, to be delivered into the cytoplasm of the target cell. Mm. And so that's really what the lipid nanoparticles do. They, 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 we package up the mRNA uh, in, these, uh, in these 100 nanometer or smaller uh, systems, and then uh, they, uh, they, they, will, they will then... Uh, Now, take it to take that material and say in the case of something being injected intramuscularly, um, those will be taken up into muscle cells and antigen presenting cells uh, in the region of the um, of the injection and uh, cause a very and then the mRNA that's in there uh, gets uh, gets uh, decoded into the protein that it codes for. Uh, say the uh, spike protein in the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the one that causes COVID-19, and then causes a very, a very um, vigorous immune response to that protein. But the basic thing is, it's you know, like a FedEx, if you want to think of it that way, uh, that just uh, protects the uh, cargo, uh, the mRNA cargo, and then delivers it inside the cell where it can actually be translated. 
So it's a, you know, the, 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 it allows us now to use much larger molecules uh, to, as therapeutics. And we're not confined uh, to the um, small molecule drugs, which are, you know, very hard to develop, take forever and cost a lot of money. Totally. I was just going to say, it sounds like a mail delivery service within your body. <laughs> um, but I guess in the wet lab or kind of the basic sciences area, I feel like I typically associate that with Albert Einstein and having this aha moment. So throughout your journey of discovering all these, um, the next big thing in lipid nanoparticles and um, all the related areas, do you remember having like a aha moment and what that process was like? Um, well, I have to say it's a bit incremental. Uh, you, you know, I mean, as I, as I mentioned, right in that uh, you know long, uh, um, uh, <clears throat> the, you know, basically it's going through the whole history of the uh, of the um, story. Um, the the um, one of the, the first steps was well, how can we package uh, these nucleic acid polymers like mRNA into a lipid nanoparticle? And you know, if we in a non-toxic way, that uh, you know, there were these positively charged lipids uh, that were available, but they were they were very very toxic. Uh, it was certainly a, an aha moment when we managed to uh, get these um, these these uh, nucleic acids. We were using DNA at that stage, antisensibly the nucleotides, but. Um, and we got those packaged in, and uh, we, you know, at say pH four, and then and then raise the pH to physiological pH, and the the oligos stayed in the uh, lipid nanoparticle. Uh, you know, and they were encapsulated very efficiently. So that was certainly something uh, where you, you say, "Wow, okay, now we've got these big things. If it, you know, we can we can get ninety to one hundred percent efficient encapsulation and all of that in very reproducible systems." Um, the next step was um, to uh, say, okay, well, now we've got something that's reasonably non-toxic and um, is highly is reason we can manufacture it, and uh, you know is uh, is uh, reasonably efficient at encapsulating our cargo. Uh, does it actually work to do anything in vivo? And uh, see, seeing that uh, initially, our initial efforts were, yeah, there's 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 some indications of um, that we were using siRNA at this stage, small interfering RNA to silence the target gene in the liver, and we were seeing something, but the um, the uh, formulation was too toxic. In other words, uh, the um, you know we were operating at a level that um, a dose level. Uh, where the formulation uh, was was pretty toxic, and uh, the um, and so uh, I went to a, uh, a chemist, uh, Marco Cifolini, in the chemistry department here, and said, "Well, how can we make our system a bit less toxic?" Um, and so he came up with a, a different uh, variant on the ionizable lipid that we were using, and um, it was not only it turned out to be not only less toxic, but it was also more potent. So that was certainly an aha moment, which gave us the idea that uh, perhaps we could really we could really optimize these systems uh, to get to, to get really uh, very efficient uh, <clears throat> very efficient silencing or delivery to to hepatocytes in the liver, and the um, and so we exploited that and ended up with systems where. We had a therapeutic index of a thousand, which means we could give a thousand times higher dose uh, than the therapeutic dose uh, before we saw any toxic uh, side effects. 
And that's when you're developing a drug, that's always the thing that kills you is, uh, is the toxic uh, effects that that drug may have. I mean, if you're aware from cancer drugs, you know, they're, off, they're often poorly tolerated, which limits the dose you can give. And so therefore their anti-cancer effectiveness. Um, the, uh, in this case, uh, we had a big therapeutic window. So that meant we had a, you know, it was, a, it was a, it had, it had real, real potential as a therapeutic. So that was, uh, that process uh, became full of aha moments. You want to think of it that way, particularly as we got to this point uh, where the, um, we had a formulation that was really, really not very toxic at all, but also highly effective. That's when we knew that we probably had something that might be useful in vivo as in, in the clinic. And how were you able to know that it was also safe? So when you made this discovery, you just talked a little bit about how you knew there is potential and that you knew it's something new and important. But how were you able to know the safety? Yeah, the safety is partly this toxicity issue I, I mentioned. The uh, these are we are obviously the liver is a target organ because um, we were we were uh, we're silencing uh, genes in the liver um, and uh, the um, and we had this window very high window uh, we give a thousand times higher dose before we would see say raised ALT AST levels of the um, of the indicating liver toxicity. Now in addition to that, you do the um, <clears throat> the pathology. Uh, to examine uh, the any other uh, any other issues that might be arising, uh, so the um, and uh, you know that came up very clean. the The other part of this, of course, is with these with the RNA based drugs, uh, they don't get into the nucleus, uh, they, so they don't affect uh, the um, genomic DNA. Uh, it's only they're only there in the cytoplasm, and so they're intrinsically extremely safe from that point of view as well. Uh, so the um, yeah the, the the end result is what we 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 knew we had a pretty uh, a pretty uh, oh the other part was we just we started to design some of the lipids so that they were readily broken down uh, in the um, you know <clears throat> by en by uh, esterases uh, in the in the body uh, so that while they were there for uh, the actual you know enabling the nucleic acid cargo to get into a cell. Uh, that they were relatively rapidly degraded subsequent to that. So these are pretty safe drugs for sure. Um, as our focus of our podcast is more on knowledge translation and how to really get your research um, out to the public or whoever your end user is. And in our case example of the COVID vaccine, once it found its use within the mRNA vaccine, that's kind of how it was translated. And just out of curiosity, is knowledge translation a common term used in the field of biochemistry? Or is there another term that kind of encapsulates the process of translating that research into whatever it could like the impact that it has well yeah knowledge translation is certainly one um, way that's uh, as described commercialization uh you know uh, moving things into the clinic uh, you, the, 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 there's quite a variety of, of terms um the, the, the basic thing you know the, the, the basic thing is you're trying to uh, move a discovery that's being made in academia into uh, the real world and have it to have some uh, benefit, whether that's therapeutic benefit or, or other other benefits. And it's a complicated process. So, and I've started up, you know, over 10 um, uh, startup companies uh, over my career. And um, the, 
and that's just simply to get things that are you know maybe have their origins in the lab, but to get them uh, out there into the community. The, the, the companies I've started now employ about well, four to five hundred people locally. Uh, so we're now known as a as, you know a worldwide hub uh, in terms of nanomedicine and lipid whole lipid nanoparticle technology. And th there's a number of reasons for doing this. Um, in addition to the desire to get things uh, the into a you know to be clinically used, one of the one of the reasons I started doing this originally uh, was simply to keep a team together. As I said at the outset. Uh, I had a very good team, um, and uh, this was this starting a company was a way of, of keeping that team together. And you know, if we hadn't done that, uh, we wouldn't have uh, achieved the success that we have achieved. Uh, you, you build up a, a reservoir of expertise and um, experience and know-how uh, that uh, is impossible to do um, in a long-term way in an academic environment. And you speak of uh, getting a team together as an important knowledge translation tool, and you show that with your companies. Would you say that also has been the way for you to um, collaborate with Dr. Carrico and Weissmann before COVID-19 to get then um, the nanoparticles into the current vaccine? Or like, how did that knowledge, knowledge translation process work in this context? Yeah, it was, it was a serendipitous event, really. Uh, the um, you know we were we had that we had a, a comp the company called Acuitas, which I co-founded in 2009, uh, together with Tom Madden and Mick Hope, were two of the original people in my lab in the early 80s. You know, we've been working together for 40 years, but uh, the um, we were we were packaging up messenger RNA in uh, in lipid nanoparticles, and then. Uh, the uh, and and injecting that intravenously, and we were seeing gene expression in the liver. Uh, so that which which was fine, but it had nothing to do with the vaccine. Uh, it, it's just that uh, Drew Weissman read about this and said, "Boy, that's interesting." Now, if they can make pro can make uh, cells in the liver, hepatocytes, make a protein um, using their delivery system, maybe it will also uh, make proteins when it's injected as a vaccine. In other words, uh, if I if you put in mRNA coding for a protein associated with the vaccine, uh, associated with a virus, then perhaps uh, that would make a good a good vaccine. And so it was that it was uh, we, we, we weren't work going after vaccines at all. Um, uh, we, were, uh, we were we were we were trying to make therapeutic proteins in the liver, which is a heck of a lot of Therapeutic ap applications of, uh, but uh, the uh, it turned out uh, that uh, there the application of pretty much more, almost exactly the same delivery system where you have a messenger RNA coding for a viral protein uh, turned out to be a great vaccine when delivered intramuscularly, and the um, the reason for that is not just the fact that you've got the uh, protein being made uh, in say muscle cells and antigen presenting cells. This, this is where we got really lucky. Uh, the, um, it turned out that the, the system itself, the lipid nanoparticle, uh, made a very good adjuvant, uh, as it's termed. And so it was produced a, um, an immune response uh, that was very, very potent. The, um, <coughs> it's, it's, uh, it, for example, the immune responses are often way better than you get uh, by getting infected with the disease itself. 
so uh, which is uh, which is pretty re- pretty incredible. Well, the ninety five percent effectiveness speaks to that, um, you know, with the original clinical trial. So yeah, it's uh, you have to get lucky sometimes. We got very lucky with that one. Totally. And I guess you mentioned commercialization is also a term used in biochem. And I feel like what you did with your lipid nanotech uh, research and into the vaccines counts as commercialization. So was there anything that you weren't expecting to happen once your discovery and your science was implemented in something so globally implemented, such as the vaccine? (laughs) Well, I, you know, I mean, the, the, when the results were announced in November 2020, and as I mentioned, the 95% uh, protection, regardless of age, ethnicity, and, uh, you know, the tolerability uh, was pretty good. Um, I, we basically, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, geez, that was that's incre- incredible. And for a vaccine that's 70% effective, that's considered pretty good. Uh, so this was um, this was really unheard of. Um, so that's kind of one thing. I mean, you just say, "Wow, you know, that's uh, that, that, that that's a pretty big deal." Uh, I guess the other part has just been the sheer impact. Uh, you know that, that uh, the um, this has had worldwide. I mean, who, who could have who could have ever prophesied that something you work on, you know, you think you're you think it's important. Uh, but you never really think it's going to be that important. Uh, so this one turned out to be uh, amazingly important uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, from a global point of view. I, uh, as I say, the, the, this this is, uh, the, the, these are things you can't program. You you can't say, gee, I'm going to do this. Uh, you know, I'm going to cure a major disease and um, go at it in a linear fashion. You, you do have to have some luck along the way, that's for sure. You um, you mentioned earlier that you always worked with the, your team together to build up your companies and you work with industry together. But assuming that not everyone is in your field of work, um, I assume not everyone who was working with you in the company or invested maybe time and many always understood what you're doing. How did you deal with that? Or how would you even convince them that it's something important to invest time and money in? Well, it's it's an interesting question. The the, the um When you start a company, you know when you're in, say let's go back a bit. I mean, if you're just in a in a research lab, then of course your main thing is research, and you're trying to get some things, trying to understand biological phenomena, and get uh, maybe get some things to work in a reproducible way. When you start a company, uh, it really is it's more of a, you know more of a team because you you need a team to do all the different things that are necessary to do uh, to the, say develop a product. And so you need, you know, you need financial people who are going to help you raise the money and, you know, organize all that. Uh, you need management people uh, who know how to set up a uh, an organization. You know, human resources. You need um, <clears throat> you need the um, uh, mark, not marketing so much as people that will. It's in the early, not so much in the early stages, but you need people that are able to set, set up uh, partnerships uh, with other companies, so straight management capabilities, um, and uh, the, you need legal. Uh, you, you need all kinds of all kinds of, uh, of different skill sets, and uh, that, that it's it's quite remarkable when you get a whole organization running like that uh, that is all focused on the same end. You know, which might be getting a drug that's going to uh, be a benefit to people. But I really enjoy that process, and it's actually not that it's not 
you know, I mean, it sounds complicated getting all those bits and pieces working uh, in, a, in a in a unified manner, uh, but it's very gratifying when you get it when you get it so it's really humming. And um, it's one of the attractions of companies actually is that uh, you know extreme teamwork that's required. Even even before setting up this whole team, how did you pitch your project and your ideas to the people you wanted to hire? How did you convince them that this is important? Well, there's a, this is something you, some things you can do inside uh, an academic setting. Uh, you have to have a pretty robust data package. I mean, say in the case of a cancer drug, for example, uh, then you know you have to have some evidence and say an animal model of cancer uh, that uh, your your particular formulation is working. Uh, so you get that together. Uh, you can. You also have to have um, a uh, some intellectual property uh, so that it's clear you, 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 you that your product is uh, is well protected and that uh, it, you know there's uh, nobody else can make it. Um, and so you have that. The, the, so those are those are things that you have to have some idea of toxicity if you can if you can you know make the bigger the window the therapeutic window as I was indicating you know the better off you are. Um, yeah, the competing products, uh, you know, what else is out there? I mean, is there, is there already a drug that cures the disease that you're trying to cure? You know, that, that's not a, anyway, so you need to do the, uh, you need to do that, um, uh, that those kinds of analyses in terms of uh, the, the medical need, et cetera. Um, but if you, those are the things that it, I started up a couple of not-for-profit organizations that are really very much focused in that area. The, such as the Center for Drug Research and Development, which we started off in 2004, uh, which was an, N which an NCE, a National Center of Excellence in Commercialization. And um, that's morphed into what is now Admari. Um, so that's on the, on the UBC campus here. It's in the same building as FarmSci. Uh, but, uh, you know, they just got $92 million from the government to uh, continue Uh, these sorts of uh, this this sort of uh, um, putting together the full package that will convince an investor to invest in a in a particular technology coming out of the university. Um, those are the kinds of you know those sorts of uh, things that are needed to um, to often provide to make the data package convincing enough uh, so that an investor uh, feels assured that uh, you know there's a good chance this could actually work. And I feel like we've talked a lot about the positives of co-founding a lot of biotech companies. So before everyone, all of our listeners start launching their own biotech companies, I want to touch a little bit on your learnings and potentially some challenges that you faced. So when launching Acuitas or any of your other um, biotech industry companies, what is something that you've learned in that process? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's a rough business, right? I mean, the the, the um, and it very you know, the, I mean, luck or not or lack thereof uh, can play a big role. The the um, uh, one instance was with Inex company. We started off in 1992. Uh, we um, we had a drug to treat uh, leukemia, and uh, the so we ran a clinical trial, and then we went to the FDA, the, the U.S. FDA, and 2004, and uh, we didn't get approval of the drug. They said they wanted some more data. And you know, at that point, we just didn't have the money to run, to uh, to run the additional studies, and so we had to downsize the whole organization. 
really dramatically. Um, I mean, I had to let over a hundred people go. Uh, so that was not that was not a very pleasant uh, situation. Uh, it also caused us to really pivot and say, okay, well, let's go after uh, really go after the nucleic acid-based drugs, and so the as opposed to small molecule drugs, which the cancer drugs were. And um, so in many ways, that was, uh, you know, that ended up being quite successful. But there was that particular interlude that was really not much fun at all, um, where, you know, you, you pin a lot of people's hopes to, uh, we, 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 we applied to the FDA just after Vioxx was, um, I don't know if you know the Vioxx story, but uh, the, uh, this is a drug that was approved for um, I think it was a blood pressure drug, but anyway, it had really nasty effects, uh, cardiotoxic effects in a small proportion of people. And so it had been approved by the FDA, and then they basically pulled it back. But they were in a very protective mood. Um, And uh, so even though I feel that our drug should have got, our cancer drug should have got approved in 2004, well, the vote went against it, and uh, so that was that. Um, and uh, so the vagaries of the approval process, uh, the whole regulatory process that surrounds approval of a medicine, uh, is uh, you know the, 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 it's, it's a difficult process and very expensive too. I feel like I'm seeing some similarities between academia and industry in terms of really being reliant on like grant funding or even funding in general. And it seems like money plays a big role in both aspects. So I guess one question for you is you are very heavily involved in both academia and industry as a full professor and co-founders of multiple businesses. So what are some learnings that you've applied from the other aspect of your role? So for example, is there anything you've taken from the academic side that you took into account when launching your business or learn something from your business that you applied back into academia and running your research lab, um, even in teaching classes? How do those two kind of different hats affect one another? Well, it's a it's a good question. The, the 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 I mean, obviously, the companies that I got involved in starting. I mean, it's science first, second, third, and fourth. Uh, the the, the um, you know that you really you really emphasize the need to uh, to to be you know that that you really have to have something that's that's scientifically very valid and. and I, it's amazing, but you end up doing often research in a company environment um, that uh, is very important to do. Uh, that often you can't do in an academic environment, um, partly because of cost. Uh, you know, the, 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 to to, uh, <coughs> to to often so to run animal studies, for example, at the scale that we had to uh, to uh, get uh, the necessary data uh, for the right to, for the to be able to go into the clinic. Um, to do that in an academic setting, it was, uh, I mean, boy, oh boy, uh, just uh, way too expensive. And so raising money so we could actually run that uh, was, uh, you know, was an example of um, where you, you, it's research that you really find, find great difficulty in doing in ac- ac- the academic setting. Uh, the um, the flip side is um, is an interesting one. I, I've always tried to, to educate the uh, the students or in postdocs in my my lab, uh, as to the opportunities uh, outside in it or in addition to academia, uh, people go through the academic process and um, you know and say doing a PhD or whatever, 
And uh, really, the only avenue that they look see ahead of them is an academic one. And um, uh, I think the, um, but the reality is, you know, there's all kinds of different things that you can do with a PhD. Uh, your, your employment opportunities are pretty much unlimited. And uh, so the, um, the, and in the small biotech, you know, you, you certainly have that, uh, you have that, uh, the, 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 those opportunities. Uh, the, um, in the early stages of a, of a small company, I mean, every employee has to do everything, right? So it may be your expertise is at a bench level doing, you know, particular experimental work, but you're probably going to be called on to, uh, you know, to talk to partners in terms of, uh, you know, setting up a collaboration. You're going to be talking to the um, lawyers about intellectual property. You're going to be trying to manage a small group. I mean, all of these, all of these things are, uh, are talents uh, that are, and are vocations that, uh, you know, people, uh, the, the, those opportunities are totally there uh, for somebody in uh, in a, in a um, you know getting a PhD or doing a postdoc. So I really try to try to uh, emphasize that don't feel limited uh, by the um, by the prospects in academia. In addition, the salaries are a bit higher too. So, <laughs> so another, <laughs> of course, that doesn't take much, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> That's a good point. Um, so last questions for today. You mentioned, I think, two key highlights for professionals from academia or people who work with complex matters is a key point is to have a good team and also really think outside the box to, um, you know, for collaboration and your professional development. But do you have any other tips for, um, let's say, academic professionals who uh, want to translate their knowledge at the right time to the right people? Uh, yeah, I mean the 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 the, um, the main thing is to uh, there's lots of programs that are you know aimed at uh, trying to get uh, you know academic discoveries out into quotation marks the real world. Um, the the the, the um, and so you know these some of these translational grants. I mean you know apply for them and um, and start. The other thing is just to start stuff off. Uh, you know sometimes you can imagine all the difficulties there are. And it inhibits you from uh, from actually doing something. Um, I've always found, you know, it's just like ready, fire, aim kind of thing. Uh, the, um, the you you you, ha you have some you're never going to have the full picture uh, where you're guaranteed a successful outcome. And so at some point you just got to say, I, I'm going to go with this because we I have the, it has the right feeling, and uh, and then uh, and then just make it happen. So that that's a uh, I think I think for a lot of academics uh, they they get a bit scared by all the things they don't know and not realizing they probably know more than they think. So I think the ready fire aim quote has I've heard that recently from a lot of people. So I'm seeing a trend here, but I think that's definitely a great summary of what to do next. So to summarize, today we learned the whole timeline of how lipid nanoparticles, research direct from Dr. Peter Cullis's lab here at UBC, has led to the development of mRNA vaccines that have been rolled out worldwide to combat COVID-19. And overall, it's important to remember to keep your eyes and options open beyond academia. And with a sprinkle of luck and collaboration, it could lead to a number of opportunities and discoveries, and you could potentially start some biotech companies along the way. So thank you again to Dr. Cullis for highlighting the science that really went into the vaccines and for a great informative episode.
That's it for today, right from the heart of Vancouver. Thanks to UBC AMS for supporting this podcast. Keep in touch in the meanwhile on Twitter at Raincoat Podcast. Till next time. Stay dry and stay safe.